Hello, I'm Earl Fontanelle, and you're listening to the Schwepp, the secret history of Western esotericism podcast. Online at schwepp.net. Episode 180, Augustine of Hippo, Saint of the Exoteric. Well, gentle listeners, we've introduced a few things about the life and teachings of Augustine of Hippo last time. This time we want to reverse our usual thing where we introduce someone and then have an episode devoted to the esoteric aspects of their thought. And we're going to do an episode on the anti-esoteric aspects of Augustine's thought. Now, there are some esoteric aspects to Augustine's thought. Uh, He had some visionary experiences to which we've alluded. And maybe more more significantly, in some of his works, he gets very apophatic. One passage from Unchristian Doctrine, seemingly echoing Plotinus, can serve in an example here, and it's a doozy. Augustine has been discoursing on the Trinity, and he then says, quote, Have I said or uttered anything worthy of God? Far from it. I feel that I have done nothing other than wished to speak, and if nevertheless I have spoken, I did not want to say this, which I said. How do I know this, except inasmuch as God is ineffable? But whatever was said by me would not have been said if he were ineffable. And for this reason, God is not to be called even ineffable. Ne ineffabilis quidem dicendus est Deus. Since when this is said, something is said. And some kind of contradiction in terms, pugna verborum, arises, since if that is ineffable which cannot be said, it is not ineffable, since it can be said to be ineffable. This contradiction in terms would be better allayed by attending to silence than through speech. End of quote. Yauza, that is some serious unsaying on Augustine's part. Augustine's text is attacking itself on all fronts, which is a, a characteristic of high-octane apophatic uh, unsaying. And he even ends with the classic valorization of silence, which he is, of course, in the process of vigorously breaking in this passage. This contradiction in terms would be better laid by attending to silence than through speech. Okay, well, shut up then. A nice piece of written esotericism, we might say, right? And there's a third place in which Augustine is, I feel, a highly esoteric writer. However, he denies it. In fact, in the course of his denials is where he often employs the written esoteric. How so, you ask? Well, we're going to get to that in this episode. But let's carry on for the moment. Uh, Augustine's overall approach is to deny that there is an esoteric aspect to Christianity. How is this possible, you ask? How can the author of the statement about God's ineffability and the need for holy silence in the face of his majesty be reconciled? I mean, that was some hard-to-access stuff, right? He's uh, invoking paradox. He's doing a lot of mind gymnastics. This isn't easy. Um, How can that be reconciled with the fact that, quote, Augustine is quite clear that there is a vast, ascertainable, and detailed body of Christian truths which all must hold and which can easily be discovered by all. End of quote. That's from Knowles, who is one of the translators of this old penguin translation of Augustine City of God. I'm 
quoting the introduction of that. So the task of reconciling these two apparently contradictory Augustans is the task of the current episode. But before we get to Augie, let's start by refreshing ourselves on the aspects of the esoteric which Augustine was firmly against, and which we have been discussing in the podcast. We note that these are, for the most part, forms of what he considers to be deviant Christianity. He's not primarily concerned with refuting Platonists or Hermetists or pagans. Uh, He's concerned, especially in his later works, with refuting other Christians, whom he calls things like perverse sectarians and deluded fools and heretics. He does, of course, have major critiques for the so-called pagans, this we know, but interestingly, he does not criticize them for their esotericism, for the most part. He criticizes them for being demon worshippers, essentially. But Christians, the Christians, are guilty of being esoteric on a number of levels, and Augustine is against this. In fact, he identifies it with heresy. So let's begin with a a very quick run-through of some of the aspects of Christian esotericism, which we have talked about in the podcast so far which might just be a useful thing to do, and against all of which Augustine will have something to say. So first of all, as we discovered in a number of special episodes on the early roots of Christian esotericism, and in our discussion of the pseudo-Clementines in episode 156 of the podcast, a number of early Christian movements claimed a direct apostolic succession. So Jesus handed some stuff to one of his disciples, and that disciple handed it to this guy, and then that guy founded a church, and that church claims this uh, direct line back to Jesus. Okay, so far so good. The Catholic Church actually officially claims such an apostolic succession through the Apostle Peter. He went to Rome, he handed the, you know, keys of the spiritual city to uh, the Pope, and Bob's your uncle. Ah, true, says Augustine. But these thinkers, these heretics, are claiming an esoteric teaching transmitted through this apostolic succession. It's not just any old teaching. It's secret wisdom that was not given to all the Christians. Already in the second century, Irenaeus Lyon was castigating various groups that he called heretics or Gnostics or both as falsely claiming to secret teachings transmitted from Jesus and passed down through special disciples. Basilides of Alexandria is a famous case here. But it's a very common claim in early Christianity. Perhaps... It's even a normative claim among early Christian movements. You've got a movement. The next question is, which disciple transmitted your doctrines? Um, You know, what's your your pedigree as a movement? You say, well, we are a church that was founded by such a body. And you might also want to say, and we have some secret inner teachings, which were given to us by such a body that other groups are not aware of. There are, of course, many passages in the Gospels where the evangelists more or less clearly state that Jesus was taking certain of his disciples aside to give them special teachings which take place off the page. They're not given to us. So any anti-esotericist Christian will need to account for these passages. We discussed that evidence in our special episode entitled The Esoteric New Testament Part 1, The Gospel of Mark, way back after episode 64, alongside the theme of the messianic secret in Mark. Now, Augustine will make this attack and try to uh, argue these secret doctrines out of existence. But we'll get to that. For now, the point here is that there were plenty of canonical textual materials in the New Testament indicating that Jesus was an esoteric teacher in various ways and had more or less secret doctrines. And two, there were plenty of Christian teachers and movements who picked up this cue and ran with it. 
Augustine is going to oppose all of this. Now, a concomitant of the idea of a Christian esotericism, going back to Jesus himself, is the social fact of the actual groups of esoteric Christians in antiquity. We'd love to know more about these guys, but there's some intelligent speculations we can make. As we've seen in our discussions of various Gnostic groups, while it's very difficult to model the social scenes which lay behind the texts we have, and the accounts of the heresiologists both help us and also muddy the waters when we're trying to pierce the veil of history and imagine ancient Gnosticism, Gnostic Christianities in their natural habitat, or let's just say esoteric Christianities, since it's a less loaded term. While all of this is difficult to model, we can say some stuff, and I think it's safe to say there was a whole spectrum in later antiquity. On the one hand, you had your hardcore separationists or sectarians, people who split off from a sinful world and went and probably did a lot of ascetic stuff in small groups. We see this kind of extreme asceticism and renunciation and separation in orthodoxy, accommodated within the orthodox churches, but often reluctantly so, right? It has to be managed because it's very anarchic, this kind of movement. But we also see it in antiquity clearly flourishing among some of the wilder esoteric Christian groups. There, there was a lot of extreme asceticism mixed in with a lot of what's called Gnostic texts that shows up in the texts. Incidentally, something along these lines also seems to have been going on in certain sects of late Second Temple Judaism. Whatever was happening at Qumran, home of the famous Dead Sea Scrolls, it was some kind of ultra-elite, ultra-segregated, holy-elect extremist movement. And though they don't know about Jesus, they have a guy called the Righteous Teacher who seems to be quite a, a Jesus-like figure in certain ways. So this is another example of continuum from late Second Temple Judaism to Christianity. They're in some certain ways, they're doing the, the same thing. So at one end of the spectrum, we have these various kind of go off and live in a compound and uh, homeschool your kids <laughs> type early Christians, many of whom were doing extreme ascetic practices and stuff like that and reading some weird texts. But then we also have the what you might call more integrated socially with the larger society groups of Christians who have a sort of initiatory thing. Christianity, it's not a mystery cult per se, but as we've seen, it uses the term mystery a lot. And you do have what's called the catechumenate, which is a word I can never pronounce, but I think I got it right that time, which is the idea that you don't just instantly learn everything about Christianity. You sign up, you have this sort of learning period, and at some point you're going to get baptized and become a full Christian. Now, this was the norm within a lot of the coalescing orthodoxy. You had the catechumens and the full kind of card-carrying members. And this is, of course, a form of widespread esotericism of a sort. Now, this is probably reflected in works of Christian intellectuals, like Clement and Origen, whom we've spoken about a lot on the podcast. They wrote highbrow works of philosophic Christianity, which were freely available. They weren't secret books of whatever, but they contained inner doctrines hidden within them in various ways, publicly uh, presented, but not available to people without a certain educational level. And these are meant to be accessed by those in the know. Now, those in the know in Clement are known as the Gnostics. They're known to origin as the more educated, the more spiritual. So we have that group as well. You have the idea of the catechumenate. You also have the idea of a widespread kind of dichotomy between Christians and Gnostics uh, in Clement. And so you've got with Clement, because you also have the catechumens, you probably have like three levels of Christians at least. This is a developed intellectual platonizing 
Christian esotericism, right? It's not about forming a separate sect. It's about deepening your knowledge within what's perceived to be the mainstream. Now we have a third kind of ancient form of esoteric Christian to model. These are the just regular Christians who go to church, who are part of this uh, social movement. But let's say they meet for extracurricular study groups after church. And depending on where they are, maybe someone brings some writings of Valentinus or Basilides or any number of other speculative Christian thinkers or the various uh, pseudepigraphs that are well known from kind of like parallel biblical studies and often are actually cited by patristic authors, church fathers. They're not canonical, but they're considered acceptable. But then they often shade off into the unacceptable, depending on your perspective. So there's all these texts around and there's all these Christians who are just Christians in the third and fourth centuries and beyond who are just maybe reading interesting stuff. And a lot of the stuff they're reading is stuff that we know as Gnostic material. Now, all of these social manifestations of the esoteric we've just talked about, so your extreme sects, your uh, intellectuals, the, the whole idea of levels of Christianity at large as sort of like outer and inner levels, and the kind of enemy within, the people who have heterodox ideas but are part of the larger orthodox christian community he opposes all of them in different ways uh, the ascetics are fine as long as their opinions conform to orthodoxy so he doesn't really have a problem with you um, doing extreme ascetic stuff but you better have a, a firm grasp on trinitarian theology the intellectuals are fine ditto but almost none of the earlier fathers was orthodox enough for augustine remember that trinitarianism Allah, the Council of Nicaea, had only existed since the early 4th century, despite people claiming to find it in the Bible. So there just were no Trinitarian church fathers before <laughs> the 3rd century. It would have been hard for an origin, never mind a Clement, to be a Trinitarian in the full Nicene sense. But the sectarians, the enemy within with their secret books and stuff, they are a serious problem and must be rooted out by force, if necessary. We'll come back to the question of force near the end. Last but not least, there's a third major strand of what we might call the esoteric within Christianity, which Augustine is dead set against. And this one, in a way, is the most interesting and the most difficult for him to negotiate. He's dead set against esoteric scriptural hermeneutics. The only little tiny niggling problem here, the tiny flaw in his position, is that it's impossible to read the Christian scriptures as a whole and arrive at Christianity without esoteric scriptural hermeneutics. It's impossible. Basically, you can't have the Christian Bible without something like Origen's depth allegorical reading of scripture. Uh, in a minute, we'll be getting to a few passages in Augustine's Sermons on the Gospel of John, which Bernard McGinn describes as, quote, the most detailed and incisive investigation in patristic writing of the dangers of esotericism, end quote. But what will be notable is how much Augustine, in claiming to refute this practice of teasing secret meanings out of the scriptures, uses precisely this practice of teasing secret meanings out of the scriptures, or at least secret correspondences, to prove his point. So it's esotericism versus esotericism it's just not branding itself as esotericism. 
Just like in Irenaeus' attacks on Marcus's use of the amazing esoteric arithmology to read the Apocalypse of John, Irenaeus basically turns around and says, your elaborate numerical reading of the number 666 is obvious nonsense. Check out my equally implausible reading based on a load of sixes I grabbed willy-nilly from old Hebrew books. This totally refutes you. I, for one, <laughs> do not find this convincing, and I actually find the Marcosian approach a lot more plausible. At least the Marcosian's alphanumericism was based on actual mathematics instead of just grabbing the numbers you're looking for and ramming them into your chosen interpretive framework. The point I want to make here with this comparison between what Augustine is doing and Irenaeus is doing is that it's very Procrustean. Whether we're reading Irenaeus or Augustine, when dealing with a huge, messy collection of mythographic texts with roots in the Bronze Age and its most recent chapters written a few hundred years ago, also known as the Christian Bible, all by people with radically different religious agenda, and even among the evangelists, completely different concerns and different theologies, in, in my way of thinking, but anyway, trying to make it tell a coherent story, you need some form of hermeneutic which looks for the hidden meanings, or at least the non-obvious meanings. You need the interpretive key which unlocks the meaning of the whole. So for Augustine and a lot of retrospectively Catholic or Orthodox thinkers, this is Trinitarian theology and Christ's death on the cross a la Paul of Tarsus as a kind of sacrifice magic rite which uh, saved humanity. And so in practice, Augustine just lifts out of context anything he can find which can be read as at all supporting these positions from all over the scriptures and just throws it at you. And that's his way of proving things like, for example, the fact that doing esoteric hermeneutics of the Bible is wrong. Okay. Is this really an anti-esotericist position on Augustine's part, or is this esotericism protesting too much, arguing that it isn't esotericism? Uh, we'll come back to that, gentle listener. It's interesting, in my view. Anyway, for now, let's just emphasize that question. To quote McGinn again, quote, the most important effect that Gnosticism had on the subsequent history of Christian mysticism was to make esotericism of any sort suspect, especially an esotericism based on secret modes of scriptural interpretation. End of quote. We recall that Augustine was a former Manichae, so he was a kind of Gnostic, or if we don't want to argue about Gnostic, let's just say he was a member of a movement with a robust tradition of reading all manner of writings from all different traditions as esoteric statements of the philosophy of Mani. You've got a Buddhist sutra, that's all about Mani. You've got epistles of Paul, Mani, every time. Augustine rejects this approach, and there's been a lot of scholarship about how his attack uh, was against, you know, this kind of esoteric reading. It's probably very much an attack on Manichaeism as well, which he knew so intimately well. But I, for one, fail to see how this kind of hard line can be drawn between the kinds of scriptural harmonization the Manichaeans were doing, you know. We've got selective reading from Buddhist sutras, we've got selective reading from the letters of Paul, and basically whatever they came across, making it all into esoteric Manichaean text. What's the line between that and what Augustine is doing? Reading selectively from the book of Genesis, reading selectively from the epistles of Paul, and basically whatever else he could find in his Bible, and making it all esoteric Catholic text. I can't find the line. Augustine sees the line very clearly, and Catholics do too, and a lot of scholars do, but I do not. But as I say, we'll come back to that right at the end. 
right now, let's turn to that anti-esoteric text we refer to, which is sections 96 through 98 of the Tractates on the Gospel of John, also known as the Sermons on the Gospel of John. You can find the Gibbs and Innes English translation of this text online. Uh, the address is in the notes to this episode. And if you want to go check that out really quickly, if you're listening to this by your computer, it's great stuff. It's worth a read. It's only it's just a few pages in terms of an actual physical book. And you get to see a lot of anti-esotericism in action. As Straumsa points out in a chapter on Augustine in his book Hidden Wisdom, Augustine's anti-esotericist polemic in this series of sermons, for it is a polemic, the saint pulls no punches, as we'll see, the polemic starts from a seeming contradiction in the scriptures. So here, Jesus seems to say he has certain teachings which he cannot reveal to a certain audience, while there he says stuff about how the gospel is for all. It's totally anti-elitist. So how do you harmonize these? Augustine, of course, shows that there is no contradiction between these statements. How? Well, <laughs> essentially by saying that Christianity, while totally open and having no secrets per se, of course has a kind of pedagogical cursus. So as we deepen our faith and knowledge over time, we attain to deeper understanding. And so what Jesus was actually saying here is just, I could tell you now, but you wouldn't get it. So Augustine is defanging the same statements in the Gospels that esoteric Christians see as obvious statements that Jesus had secret teachings. Listeners might want to go to the Bible and read the text and see what they think is a more plausible reading. Augustine makes actually a really interesting and weird argument here. He contrasts the disciples of Jesus, who, like famously Peter, are sort of unwilling to die, and they chicken out at the end when the time comes for Jesus to be executed. He contrasts them with what Augustine claims to be the throngs of Christian martyrs who have appeared since then. So in a way, he's valorizing these martyrs over the actual companions of Jesus, which strikes me as an audacious and interesting position to take. But the reason he takes it is to make the point, is it any wonder Jesus couldn't expect his disciples to get everything he might potentially tell them, since they weren't even as hardcore about dying for the cause as later generations? I'm not sure that argument follows, but anyway, Augustine is doing that. He's saying, of course he couldn't say everything to the disciples. I mean, they were actually a bit, a bit pathetic in certain senses, but that doesn't mean he had secrets per se. In the course of the argument in these three mini sermon chunks, Augustine makes some position statements. Jesus had no secret teachings. The people who actually have secret doctrines are evil sorcerers. That's right. It's the classic Augustinian equation of anything he disagrees with, with actual illegal demon worship. So we'll quote here from Augie. Hence, the system of magical arts commends its nefarious rites to those who are deceived or ready to be so by a sacrilegious curiosity. Curiositas is Augustine's general word for the kind of low interest in uncovering secrets. Hence, also those unlawful divinations by the inspection of the entrails of slain animals, or the cries and flights of birds, or the multiform demoniacal signs are distilled by converse with abandoned wretches into the ears of persons who are on the brink of destruction, end of quote. So, actually, the kind of people who are into secrets, secret knowledge, are detestable sorcerers who deal with demons. So that almost makes it a kind of definitional fact then that 
good Christians won't be into secrets, right? If that's the situation. And this strikes me as some fairly uh, intellectually weak argumentation that we've seen so far. But then Augustine is no dummy. And he shows in this work his accustomed little flashes of brilliant insight that you don't expect to see from this sort of heavy-handed, um, leaden conviction that he he knows what the truth is that we often get from Augustine. He recognizes the allure of secret knowledge, which is something that every student of esotericism needs to be aware of. Quote, For by such secrecy, profane teachers give a kind of seasoning to their poisons for the curious, that thereby they might imagine that they learn something great because counted worthy of holding a secret. End of quote. So Augustine is aware that everyone wants to be in the in-group, everyone wants to be counted worthy of holding a secret, and uh, were he alive today, he might um, reflect on the, the sales number of books of esoteric wisdom like The Secret, which are bestsellers, uh, mainly because they are branded as The Secret, right? Anyway, this is true that this social allure of secrecy is real, but it doesn't follow from that what Augustine claims, which is that all of this is specious trickery. None of it can be true Christianity. And that's because Christianity has no secrets. There are no inner or outer doctrines. Yes, there is the pedagogical necessity to explain things one step at a time. And he does make a kind of what almost seems embarrassed admittance that there is such a thing as catechumens, that is the Christian hopefuls who are in the introductory phase but haven't been initiated through baptism. He was, of course, one of them himself at a certain point. And he kind of uncomfortably squirms when he needs to acknowledge that actually we don't tell these neophytes certain things, that there are, in fact, inner and outer circles of Christians, just like Clement says. He doesn't mention Clement, that's me, but this is the kind of tradition he's dealing with. Basically, he admits all that, but he's just going to rebrand it, this what you might call institutional Christian esotericism, as, well, it's, it's just not esotericism. It just isn't. So what he actually says is that this, what seems to be secrecy, it's actually there to um, inspire people with a desire to know more, quote, in order that they, um, these are the things written after the Lord's ascension. So in other words, the sort of celestial knowledge of, of Jesus, they may all the more ardently be desired by them. That is the, the neophytes. And so they are honorably concealed from their view. So it's, in other words, baiting the hook, like when you become a true Christian, you will be able to learn these secrets. In other words, exploiting exactly the allure of secrecy that Augustine just uh, criticized the magicians for exploiting. And by magicians, let's remember, he means pretty much all the other Christians. Anyway, getting back to the question of how anti-esotericist is Augustine really, I think what we're looking at is a very big gap between position statement and what you're actually doing. What Augustine is actually doing, it seems to me not controversial to say, is assembling Christianity. He wrote De Doctrina Christiana, a, uh, a kind of primer of the beliefs you're allowed to hold. And we cited that um, apophatic Trinitarian passage earlier from that very work. He's arguing for the beliefs you're allowed to hold. 
based very much on scripture, although also on philosophical argumentation and other important writers of the church and teachers and so on and so forth, based on a kind of eclectic and, to my way of thinking, basically at root esoteric reading modality, which allows you to import rather hodgepodged, MacGyvered together theological constructions from church councils back onto this body of texts and make it all sound like one thing. He uses a lot of esoteric reading, is what I'm saying. But he's rebranded it. It's not esoteric reading if you're doing it. What's the criterion? At the end of the day, Catholic belief. If it's Catholic, Orthodox, but what will eventually be called Catholic, it is by definition not sorcery, not evil, not magical, not demonic, and of course, correct, and therefore not esoteric. Therefore, any aspects of kind of secrecy you need to use in the course of your average Catholic uh, community, that will also be rebranded as not esoteric, not secretive. On the other hand, if you're using those same spiritual hermeneutics of scripture to support uh, a heretical type of Christianity, it's automatically secrecy and esoteric, a case of, you know, questionable demonic type stuff. Now, there is indeed a scale. So you can look at something like the Marcosian alphanumericist approach to scripture, endless generation of meaning through recombination of numbers, stuff that we're quite familiar with from later movements like Letrism and Kabbalah and so forth, Gematria. But um, th that is a kind of extreme and luxuriant flourishing of a certain form of hermeneutical excess. And Augustine doesn't go there. But he's at least on the edges of that jungle. He's not outside the jungle, standing, you know, defiantly alone and refusing to use those methodologies on principle. He's just making damn sure he rebrands those methodologies. Now, why does Augustine care so much about all this stuff? Why, for example, aside from the usual Christian desire to squabble over points of theology and make sure that we're, none of us are heretics, why is he so worried about heresy? Well, Augustine is extremely concerned with right belief. And I think one of the reasons for this, and there are many, it's partly just a sign of the times in Christianity, but one of the many is that he's from this flourishing movement of Christians in North Africa, precisely where Augustine was from and when Augustine's are from, who really believe in eternal damnation. And they're quite obsessed with this idea of eternal damnation. This seems to have been uh, particularly a North African concern. Eventually it spreads to become Orthodox Catholic doctrine, but as we've seen in our episode on universal salvation with Morwenna Ludlow to be found in the Oddcast, it's, it's never really, really concretized across the board. Now, if believing the right thing is part of your package of salvation, and it is for Augustine, you can see why correct belief orthodoxa orthodoxy is so important to him. Now, we can quote Stromsa here. Quote, As we've seen, it's through a careful process of education that men reach understanding of spiritual matters, which are difficult because they're removed from sense perception. Augustine, like anyone else in antiquity, knows of the dangers inherent in a knowledge imparted to those who are not fit to hear it. But he understands this knowledge in what seems to be a radically new way. These dangers do not lie in the misinterpretation of truth itself by those who are not fit to hear it, but in their willingness to listen to false doctrines, 
to various false pretensions to truth hiding under its noble name. At the early stages of its intellectual and spiritual development, the mind is unable to recognize truth from falsehood. Sometimes, however, the individual is not disciplined enough to follow the path, leading from faith to understanding, but wishes to take shortcuts to a full knowledge of the truth. End of quote. This is what Augustine calls curiositas, and this is kind of the pedagogical way he sees the acquisition of Christian truth, of, of right belief, how it goes. You start out with the basic faith. You can, of course, deepen things, but there are no secrets and there is no cause to have an esotericism, except for all the ways in which he and church fathers like him in the future will police the borders of what is an okay interpretation and so on and so forth. A concomitant to this belief that Christian theological truths were the only road to salvation or part of the only road, obviously Jesus has to die for you as well. Augustine promoted a vigorous program of heresy hunting and religious coercion. He makes a physician argument, you know, if you're sick or mad or whatever, the physician might prescribe for you remedies that you don't want to take, but he's able to force you to take them because he has your best interests at heart. He's making you healthy. The heresy hunter is like the physician. The errant brethren who believe wrong stuff, it may be necessary even physically to punish them. I'm not saying he's a bloodthirsty execution monger or anything like that, but he does uh, provide a theoretical basis for any amount of bloodthirsty heresy hunting that one might wish to do. There are problems here, lots of problems, but let's just stick to the most obvious one. Augustine's line on the truth seems to have been held to the standards he would have demanded by a microscopic fragment of Christians living in his day. From the perspective of any groups within Christianity who might hew to a different line than Augustine's, his chosen interpretation of Nicene Orthodoxy, on the balance of evidence, uh, the vast majority in the 4th century are not in that group. Very few people in the Roman Empire even knew what the Greek word hypostasis meant, much less could assent to the idea that God was one usia but three hypostases at the same time, or whatever. Augustine was a freak-ass radical, or if you're on his side, he was a very stringent dude who went on about ideas that most Christians never thought about in their day-to-day -day life. And moreover, they didn't really think a little touch of easygoing syncretism was literally having truck with Satan and his minions. And getting back to the Pelagian controversy we talked about last time, surely God would reward good actions, or at least take them into account when your final reckoning comes? No, says Augustine, that's what Satan wants you to think. So for Augustine's physician analogy to work, we need to imagine the physician who is in need of coercing his patients into taking medicine. He's a physician in a scenario where less than, say, 1% of the population who's actually healthy. The overwhelming majority of people are sick, and they all need to be made to take their medicine. Ideally not by force, but if needs be, by force, so be it. And needless to say, all of the esoteric Christian groups were in need of this medicine, with their claims of privileged knowledge, some of which might even differ from Nicene Orthodoxy. Find them and root them out and make them take their medicine. Okay, I've done Augustine a bit of disservice in this episode. He wasn't the raging asshole I might have made him out to be. However, students of the history of Christianity will not be unaware of the fact that such assholism did come to be a norm in some societies.
Societies, for example, where the Inquisition had authority to try people for heretical opinions, not criminal actions, not witchcraft even, or anything like that, but just straight up thought crime. Augustine really opens the door for this kind of assholism. He justifies it theoretically in his anti-esotericist um, musings. And for that, I personally do not forgive him. Stay esoteric. <laughs> <laughs>